0: Before we begin our message, I just want to invite you to bow your heads and to pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have gathered us together as a family of faith. That in this time, you desire to speak to us, to teach us from your word about what it means to walk with you, but also to walk with one another as your church. And so, Lord, give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a series that we are calling This Is Us. We've taken that title from the very popular television show, which is a show that, is, um, that follows a family. And it's kind of a, a different kind of family, a very diverse family. But it's a beautiful story about how they grow and learn together what it means to, to be a family through the ups and downs of life. And as uh, we were thinking about this series in which we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking at this question, what does it mean to be the church? We felt that that was an appropriate title. Because as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been talking about what does it really mean to be the family of God on mission together? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we live with one another? How do we walk in faith together and support each other as we live out our mission? That's really what we've been going over over the past several weeks, and As we come again to the book of Acts this morning, I think one of the things that's fair to say is that if you've been, if you're in a family long enough, eventually you're going to fight about something. That all families have conflicts, right? That there are certain things that come up and you guys just start to butt heads. And I think especially if you're in a family where there are a lot of strong personalities, conflicts can become kind of a regular thing. And what I wanted to say this morning is that it's no different in the life of the church, that we, when we think about being a family of faith, the reality is, is that there will be conflict. There will be fights that we will have with one another, things that will divide us, things that will actually, uh, that, that can threaten to pull us apart. And so, one of the things that we need to remember when we, when we encounter those conflicts, when we run up against those moments in which we don't agree, is to realize first and foremost that conflict in and of itself is not the problem. Okay? Conflict is not the issue. Conflicts are going to happen. But what really does matter is what do we do about the conflicts when they come up? What do we do about the conflicts when they emerge? And, and one of the things that we find is that healthy families, healthy families learn how to work through conflict well. Healthy families know how to fight well in such a way that when they get through the conflict, they're actually stronger as a result. That the conflict doesn't end up ripping their lives apart. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at a conflict in the early church. And we want to understand how did they handle that conflict and how did they handle it in a way that we can learn something about what happens when we disagree in the family of God. And so the story we're looking at is in Acts chapter 15. It begins in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up uh, the Bibles uh, that you have. And uh, let's take a look at the first couple verses together. This is what happens. It says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small disagreement and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and to talk about this question. Now the first thing that we see in this story is that there is a fight. There's a battle taking place within the church. And it's a fight over who is included in the family and under what circumstances, under what terms. You see, um, early on in the book of Acts, most of the church's ministry was being done within a 100% Jewish population. They were primarily in Jerusalem. They were ministering to fellow Jews, and they were proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the anointed one, the anointed king. But what happened with the church is that by the time we get to Acts 15, the church has now broken out beyond just the Jewish community, that they have now gone to the four corners of the Roman Empire proclaiming that message of God's love, of God's grace, of God's salvation to all who desired to hear it. And what they saw was that Gentiles, pagan people, were coming to faith. That people who knew nothing about the Old Testament scriptures were suddenly becoming followers of Jesus. And now they had a question. Now the question was just like, so wait a second, do they then have to follow all the Old Testament laws? And, And how do we incorporate them into the family? What are the family values that they need to uphold? And there were some who basically said, no, if they're going to be a part of this family, then they need to obey all of the Old Testament laws, that they need to keep the traditions of Moses, that basically they have to be Jewish before they can be Christian." And this obviously causes a little bit of a fight because of the fact that Paul and Barnabas were were two of the leading apostles who would go out to the nations with that message. They were the ones leading the Gentile mission, and to hear these people come in and basically threaten their calling and their ministry was, was something that, well, led to no small dispute, no small debate within the family of God. And so the question is, why do conflicts like this arise, and how do we solve them? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons, a couple of contributing factors to why uh, conflicts like this arise in the church, but also just in relationships so when we're looking at our own families and our workplaces. I think one of the contributing factors that leads to us, um, that leads to us uh, having a difficult time with conflict, one of the contributing factors really is, is that we've lost our focus. We've lost the focus of why we're there and of what we're doing. And that certainly is true in the church, that oftentimes part of the reason that there's conflict in the church is because of the fact that we lose our focus on God's mission. We forget why we're here. We forget the purpose for which we've been called. I'm sorry, guys, can you get this to work, please? I've been trying to click my way through these. (laughs) But we forget our our, our focus. We forget why we're here. We forget the mission that we've been called to. And as a result, when we forget our mission and we forget why we're here, that leads us to then become distracted and to start focusing on other things, to make other things more central. We start to ask, uh, we start to make things like the carpeting more central. Or the upkeep of our building more central. Or how we uh, do certain kinds of ministry or what kinds of choirs we have and so on and so forth. We, 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 uh, these cause a, a great deal of dispute. We've lost our focus. In fact, one of, the things that, uh, one of the passages that I often point to is this passage from Proverbs 29, verse 18. And uh, in the King James, it says, where there's no vision, the people perish. But I like how the message puts it. It says, when people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. And that's often the case when it comes to how we handle conflict. There's also another factor that often works its way in, and that is the reality of our own sinful nature. The fact that we can be pretty selfish people, and that when conflict arises, we suddenly start to kind of push back against the other people because we want our way. We want things done in a way that we enjoy, a way that we appreciate. And so we butt heads with one another, and we allow our selfish desires to drive the discussion and to drive the decisions and to drive our actions, the problem with that is that it ends up breaking unity. It causes us to go our own way. love how Judges 21-25 says, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not just something that happened back in the Old Testament. I think every time we get into human conflict and we let our selfish desires run the show, we all end up going our own way. The third factor that often uh, comes into these kinds of disagreements, and that's sometimes there's just legitimate disagreement. That maybe, yeah, we've got the mission in front of us, and maybe this isn't really about egos and selfishness, but maybe there is still disagreement. Maybe it's not a question of what the mission is, but how to go about pursuing it. And so we have legitimate disagreement on the how, and we start to fight, and, and the temperatures can rise in those moments. And when these kinds of conflicts come up and these factors start to come into play, I think that there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind about how we approach conflict. Because the truth is, is that there are really two common reactions within the church when it comes to dealing with conflict. The first uh, common reaction is that we just try to sweep it under the rug. We don't want to deal with with the conflict, and so we kind of pretend it's not there, Right? We don't want to fight because, you know, here in the church, we're all supposed to be happy all the time, right? We're Christians. We're supposed to be gentle and get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. We don't fight about anything. And so that's what we do. We come up, we show up on Sunday, we sing our songs, and then we go home. But there's a problem with that because it doesn't actually deal with the underlying issue. Because we all know, I know, that there are moments when I can be smiling on the outside and I can be seething on the inside right? There are moments when I get really upset, but because I don't want to rock the boat, you know, I put on a smile for a moment, and then I go about the rest of my day just really hating the people who made me upset. See, it doesn't deal with the problem. It doesn't actually help us move forward into health. It just ends up, we end up settling for superficial relationships that when something really big comes along, it shatters and crumbles our, our fake unity, basically. It's as if a doctor came to us and said, you have a very, very serious disease. We have to treat it right now. And we were to say, well, the treatment sounds uncomfortable, so I'm just going to keep doing everything the way I normally do it, and hopefully it will go away. It doesn't help. But there's another reaction kind of on the other end of the spectrum, and that's that when a conflict arises, we get in it to win it. We don't really care about the other person. What we care about is getting our own way. At the end of the day, I want to win. And so we engage in a battle of wills with the other person, but we forget. We forget that the reason we're here is because we're a family of faith. And we end up just beating each other up in order to get our way. And at the end of the day, we may be standing as the king on the hill, but there are bodies all around the base. There are casualties as a result of our fights and of our disagreements, of our conflicts that have not been handled well. Again, to go back to that earlier illustration of a doctor, it's as if a doctor comes to us and says, you have a very, very serious disease, but I know just how to treat it. And he treats it so aggressively that, yeah, he beats the disease, but he also ends up killing the person. You see, both avoidance and being in it to win it lead to the same result. It just continues to further unhealthy cycles of relating. It ultimately leads to death. And Furthermore, it damages our witness. It harms our ability to continue to reach out to other people. In fact, as I've been uh, you know, in ministry uh, since 2006, really, I can't tell you how many times I've come across people who the reason they've turned their back on Christianity actually has nothing to do with what we believe the reason they turn their back on the church is not because they've lost their faith in God, but it's because they've been burned by a conflict within the church that was not handled well. They say, you know, I don't go to church anymore, and I don't want to have anything to do with that Christianity, because Christians are just hypocritical people. And then when conflict comes up, they just tear at each other and tear at each other. They smile on Sunday morning, and then they rip each other apart on Monday through Saturday. That often our failure to handle conflict well can be one of the biggest barriers to our witness in the world. And one of the places I see this right now, a lot, is in social media. I will be honest, I am frankly embarrassed by some of the fights that take place between Christians on Facebook and Twitter. That when we've lost our focus and we start making something else more central to what it means to be a Christian, we get into these fights on social media and quite frankly, like I hope that all of my non-Christian friends on Facebook never see some of these conversation threads. I hope they don't come to church because I don't want them to step into that. See, we have to stop and we have to consider, is my posture in the midst of conflict furthering the cause of the gospel or simply erecting more barriers to it? Am I really putting Jesus at the center? Or am I throwing up all this other stuff so that I can feel better about myself and so that I can make my point at the end of the day? I mean, think about the early church for a second. What would have happened if they didn't handle this conflict well? Well, If the moment there was this debate, people started, you know, uh, opening up Twitter accounts and started tweeting about each other, and they started talking behind each other's back and putting out pamphlets and flyers, and they never actually addressed the problem. Well, I would argue that if that happened, the church would have ended its ministry within its first two decades, and none of us would be here. Because, see, at the heart of this debate was how far does our gospel message go? And if they just tried to sweep it under the rug, or if they'd just been in it to win it, none of us in this room would be sitting here today. And so the question is, how do we handle conflict well? How did they do it? And I think we see a couple of things that point to a solution in this passage. The first thing that we see is they actually address the conflict quickly and openly, that the moment the debate arises, Paul and Barnabas and a couple of others are appointed to go down to Jerusalem and they basically call a family meeting with the apostles. They say, hey, there's this big debate, this issue that we have to talk about because if we don't address it now, it could kill, uh, it could, it could kill our community and it could damage our witness. And so they call everybody together and they get it out in the open. They say, what, what are the issues that are on the table? Everybody gets a chance to speak in this family meeting. Everybody gets to just lay it out there so that we can hear all points and all perspectives. They deal with it quickly and openly. But then the second thing that they do, and I, this I just love, is they, is they go right back to the heart and the mission of the gospel. They go back to the heart and the mission of the gospel. They say, why are we here? Who are we and why are we here? I mean, Peter gives, after they've heard all the debate, as after everybody has laid it out, I love what Peter says. He gets up and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. See, Peter steps back and he says, look, guys, what makes us Christian is Jesus. What makes us the church is his grace. It's not about customs and traditions and laws and language and dietary rules. The reason we are here is because God in his love saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. God has given them the Holy Spirit the same way he gave the Holy Spirit to us. Why should we erect a barrier that God himself has not put into place, that God himself has actually overcome, has fulfilled on our behalf? Peter says, no, to be Christian doesn't mean you have to be Jewish first. To be Christian simply means you have to be saved by Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, they then consider how they can continue to live that out in their common life together. He says, okay, so, so these, these pagans, they don't have to be Jewish, but they certainly do have to be Christian, Right? So let's write us a letter. Let's write a, le- let's, let's, let's write a letter to them just saying, hey, in order to, to really live out your calling, we need you to, to abstain from things having to do with idols. And you have to, you have to turn your backs on things like sexual immorality. We, you do have to live differently. And what this does is it actually then allows them to continue their ministry to the Gentiles, but it also keeps the door open for them to continue to proclaim their message in the synagogues to their Jewish audiences as well. See, they find a solution that's rooted in the gospel and allows them to advance the gospel. That's why they're there. And he says, all, these other, all this other stuff, this is, this is all secondary. The third thing that we see them do is they then let their established leadership make a decision and they follow through with it. See, one of the things that I notice when I look at this story is what they don't do. Do you notice what they don't do? They don't take a vote. They don't decide on this course of action by democracy. What they do is they allow open debate, open discussion, but then they entrust the apostles, the people who've been called by God as their leaders, and they say, you help us make a decision. That it's Peter and James stand up and they say, we still have a mission to the Gentiles. This is the decision we're making, and this is how we're moving forward with it. And the rest of the church says, all right, let's do it. And I think oftentimes our conflicts come when we start second-guessing our leadership, when we start assigning false motive, Rather than saying, you know, let's talk about this openly, let's pray about it, and then if the leadership says go for it, let's go. That leads to the fourth and final thing that they do, is once they've made a decision, they don't look back. They don't reopen old wounds. They take that message, they take it back to the churches all around the Roman world, and they keep moving forward with the mission. That's it. Discussion's done. Let's keep moving forward as the family of faith. You see, they keep the gospel central. They get the issue out in the open. They trust one another, and they move forward together. I think that those are beautiful principles for when churches end up in conflict, about how we address those conflicts when we're together. And I think it's kind of important that this is our topic on this Sunday, this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, because the Reformation was indeed a rediscovery of some of those central truths of the Christian faith. It was kind of a going back to the heart of the gospel and to the gospel's mission. But some of the ways in which the Reformation was carried out really did exacerbate division rather than healing wounds. Because while we have some great hymns and great theology from the Reformation, it also led to things like the Thirty Years' War. It led to the division within the church and the proliferation of denominations. It led to Protestants and Catholics fighting one another and Protestants and Protestants fighting one another. And it never really brought about what we're looking for in a Reformation, which is to truly see the church reformed and renewed. And so when people say, well, how do you celebrate the Reformation well? I think the way you celebrate the Reformation well is by praying the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples, and that is that we would all be one. And that through our unity, the world would know that we are his disciples. That the world would know that he was sent. You see, when I did a lot of evangelism, especially among Muslims, one of their biggest arguments against the truth of Christianity is they said, how can you all say that you have one faith when you've got hundreds of different denominations? To be a Reformation people is to celebrate the fact that we're not Lutheran. It's that we're Christian. And that at our heart is the gospel and its mission in fact that's what Luther desired he didn't want anybody to call themselves lutheran he wanted them to just to be christians And so our calling 500 years later is to continue to pray for that, to continue to work for that, to continue to keep the gospel central. And that as we talk with Christians of other stripes, we don't let all this other tertiary stuff get in the way. We say, but what is the gospel and how do we move it forward together? How do we advance the mission of Jesus Christ and to pray for that kind of unity? And to do that within our church and to do that with all other Christians that we live and work together with. What does that look like in our daily lives? So the first thing that that looks like is it means we need to be people of peace. I love what the Apostle Paul says. He says, as if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that means that when I engage in conflict, you're never too old to ask that question, what would Jesus do? That when, I, when, uh, when uh, temperatures start to rise and we start to fight with one another, to, to take a step back and say, how would Christ have, us ste- have me step into this conversation? How can we deal with the conflict in a way that is pleasing to him and in a way that honors the other person? And the second thing is, is to go out into the world and look for places of division and be agents of reconciliation there. I mean, what if, what if the church, that when people thought of the church, they didn't think about the way all the scandals and all the splits and all the divisions, but, the re, but when they thought about the church, they said the Christians are the people who are on the front lines of building peace in this world. That where there's fight and conflict, the Christians are the ones who are bringing the peace that they have within them to bear on those problems. In fact, Jesus himself said this in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The Apostle Paul says that through Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself. What if that reconciliation was a gift that we could give to the people that we meet on a daily basis, in our families, in our workplaces, in those areas where we have influence in our communities? That's, what it, that's how families, that's how healthy families deal with conflict. They go back to who they are they extend grace, they look for healing, and they move forward in a way that continues to point people back to God and to his purposes in the world. My prayer for us as a church is that we would indeed be a Reformation people, people who live out that faith, that gospel message in our interactions with one another and as we go out into the world. I pray that it would be so in the name of Jesus Christ who is our Prince of Peace and our great Reconciler. It's in his name that we say, amen.